0: Okay, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll read the, through the whole text. Father, we pray for your blessing. Lord, this is your holy word. You inspired Paul to write it, and it has been a, so powerful. used in the lives of so many people down through the centuries. Lord, may it not miss its mark in our life today. We pray that you would, Lord, speak, and that we would hear your voice. In Jesus' name, Amen. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. David writes in Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Their righteousness might be credited to them." and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law... There is also no violation. Now, through our last couple of studies in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, we have seen that Paul is laboring to help the Roman believers understand the truth of justification by faith. And this is no small matter for Paul because he's going to deal with this subject from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 5. That's two and a half chapters in this book. He devotes to the truth of justification. In fact, if we were to go back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul gives us his thesis of the entire letter, um, he, ta- he says that his whole letter is about the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So basically, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 is the acorn out of which the whole tree of the book of Romans is going to grow. You can take verses 16 and 17, and if you look at it and expand on it, you're going to get the book of Romans. The book of Romans is about the gospel. Paul is going to explain and illustrate and unpack the gospel and apply the gospel to various aspects of the Christian life, That's what the book is about. But in particular, he says that the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Now, what does he mean by that? The righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel from faith to faith. What he means is that God's gift of righteousness comes to us through the gospel to those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who have faith. And the gift of righteousness is the same thing we mean by justification. God clothing the sinner with the righteousness of Christ through faith in him. So Paul has been laboring to unpack that. Now in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, he shows the sinner's desperate need for this righteousness to be given to him. He talks about how the heathen needs this righteousness. Then the Hebrew, the Jew, in chapter 2, he needs this righteousness. The whole world, in chapter 3, needs this righteousness. And by the time he's done and comes to chapter 3, verse 20, the whole world is laid waste and is devastated under Paul's indictments. And they all know that they're helpless and hopeless without a gift of righteousness that comes only from God. Now, when we come to chapter 3, verse 21... This is when Paul finally begins he's already stopped talking about our need for righteousness and now he's going to go on to explain it. And so he says in chapter 3 verse 21 that this righteousness it's the righteousness of God. It was manifested through the Old Testament prophets and the law. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's for everyone who believes. It is a gift that comes from God, verse 24, and it comes to us through the redemption of Christ and the propitiation of Christ. Now, we've talked about all of those things in detail, so we won't do that more today. But then in verses 27 to 31, he says this this gift of righteousness does three things in our life. It excludes boasting, it abolishes distinctions, racial distinctions, and it establishes the law. So that's that's where he's coming from. That Paul has laid that out. He's explained that over and over. Then we come to chapter 4. And we think, okay, we have a new chapter here, right? It's chapter 4. There must be something new here. So has Paul changed the subject when he comes to chapter 4? Well, let's just read it. "'What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found?' For if Abraham was, what? Justified. <laughs> that's the whole subject of chapter 3, and that's going to be the subject of chapter 4 as well. So he has not switched subjects. In fact, he uses the word justified, justifies, or justification three times in this chapter. And he also uses the term righteousness being credited ten more times. So there are 13 times in this chapter alone that Paul is going to refer to justification by faith so no he hasn't changed the subject it's the same subject well then why a new chapter whoever wrote whoever inserted these chapter divisions why'd they put a new one in right here there is a good reason it's because of who paul is talking about in chapter 4 when we were reading through this did you see anybody's name keep popping up over and over You were listening, right? You were thinking about what we read? (laughs) Abraham, Abraham. (laughs) The name Abraham, um, let me find it here. Oh yeah, the name Abraham comes up seven times in this chapter, and the personal pronouns for Abraham, like he or his that refer to Abraham, those come up 17 times. So Abraham is referred to 24 times in this one chapter, and there's only 25 verses. Abraham is the subject of this chapter. You see, in chapter 3, Paul was talking about justification in abstract terms, theological terms. But in chapter 4, he illustrates the truth of justification in a person. He clothes the doctrine of justification in flesh and says, let's look at Abraham's life if you want to understand justification. Let's not just look at this abstractly. Let's look at it in terms of an Old Testament hero of the faith. Now, before we move forward, I should also mention there's another word that occurs a lot of times in this chapter. And that's the word faith or the synonym believe. Those two words together come up 15 times. And I just want to give you a tip. When you guys are studying the Bible on your own, here's a tip for you. Look for the repeated words or phrases that keep coming up within that section. So what are they? Abraham's one? Justification or righteousness being credited, synonyms, that comes up a lot. And faith or belief comes up a lot. So whenever you study a passage, you're, you're trying to find out what's the central idea of this passage of Scripture. I hope you guys do this sometimes. <laughs> I don't expect you to be doing it all the time, but every one of us should be a Bible student, and we should look at a passage of Scripture and try to figure out, okay, what is God saying? We, we too often rush to the Bible and pull out a verse. Usually it's out of context, and we think, okay, that's going to be my verse for the day. But I want you to begin studying the Bible looking at it in his context. Look for repeated words and phrases. Try to discern what the original author was trying to communicate to his original audience. That's what we need to figure out. Not what is the Holy Spirit zapping me with today. What did it mean when it was written? Because I can't apply it until I've understood what it originally meant to its original audience. Okay, so if there are those three phrases, Abraham, justification, and faith then this chapter is going to be about how Abraham was justified by faith, right? (laughs) That's the central idea of this chapter. Now, why would Paul use Abraham as an illustration of justification? You need to think about that. Why would he do that? Why would he choose Abraham as the one? Well, it's because the Jews believe that Abraham was justified by his works, In William Hendrickson's commentary on the book of Romans, he says, the Jews taught that Abraham was the only righteous man of his generation. They taught that Abraham began to serve God at the age of three. I don't know where they got this information or why they taught that. Um, They said that Abraham's righteousness was made complete through his circumcision and through his anticipatory fulfillment of the law, which was going to be given later, but had not been given then. So they said Abraham was righteous. In fact, there's, a, there's two different sources. One's called the Prayer of Manasseh. The other is called the Book of Jubilees. These were documents written by Jews before Christ came. They're not part of the Jewish scripture. So they're apocryphal, in a sense. But let me just read some of the things that come out of these documents. In the Prayer of Manasseh, this is probably dated about two centuries before Christ... Here's one of the lines, Therefore thou, O Lord, God of the righteous, hast not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against thee, but thou hast appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. You hear that? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not sin against God? That seemed to be a a popular Jewish opinion. Uh, In the book of Jubilees, also about two centuries before Christ, it says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. A Jewish document. Now, there is a statement in Genesis 26 that even gives more credence to this thought. Genesis 26.5, where God is speaking to Abraham's son Isaac... And he says to Isaac that Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Abraham kept my commandments. He kept my laws. So it's easy to see from, these, from this one scripture verse and from these other extra biblical Jewish sources why the rabbis thought that Abraham was justified by his works. They thought he was justified by obeying the law. And so Paul wants to choose Abraham because he's going to meet his opponents on their own turf. They say Abraham was justified by works. Okay, let's take a look at Abraham's life and let's see. Is that how he was justified? Let's find out. And so back in Romans 4, verses 1 to 15, Paul is going to teach us three important things about Abraham's justification. Number one, he was justified apart from works. Number two, he was justified apart from circumcision. Number three, he was justified apart from the law. Let's dig into the text. Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? What did Abraham find? He's our forefather according to the flesh. So what did he find? In other words, what did Abraham discover about how a person is made right with God? That's really what he's saying in verse 1. What did Abraham discover about being justified, being declared righteous before God? Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now that's a strange sentence. Does Paul mean to say that If Abraham was justified by works, then he could boast about it, but he just couldn't boast before God, but he could boast before men. I don't think that's what he's saying because he's already told us in chapter 3 verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. He's not saying it was possible for Abraham to be justified by works. I think what he's saying is something like this. If Abraham was justified by his works, then he could boast about it. But before God, that is impossible. It's impossible to be justified by works. So it's impossible that anybody could boast. And the thing is, we never see Abraham boasting about his own righteousness in the book of Genesis when we read his story. In fact, what we see about Abraham was that he was a sinner. Joshua 24 verse 2 says that he was an idol worshiper before God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was an idol worshiper, worshipped idols, worshipped false gods. Twice in his life, he lied to save his own skin. Do you remember when he went down to Egypt? And he said, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Now, why would he do that? He's scared, scared for his life, isn't he? He's scared that, oh, if that's his wife, they're going to kill me and take you and put you in their harem because you're beautiful. But what he does is he exposes his wife uh, to be taken into someone else's harem and someone else is going to sleep with his wife and he's going to let them do that. I mean, it's really, really bad when you think about it. There's cowardice there. He should have told the truth or he should have left. I mean, he should have fled, or whatever. But no, he lied twice. So Abraham is not a perfect saint. He's got his blemishes. He's got his faults. Now, look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is going to be Paul's main text that he's going to use to show how Abraham was justified. It's Genesis 15, verse 6. Now, when was Abraham justified? It says here, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Was it when Abraham decided to generously give his nephew Lot all of the good, lush land that God credited him as righteous? No. Was it when he decided to offer up his son as a sacrifice to obey God that he was credited as righteous? No. Uh, Was it when he made great sacrifices for God or built altars to God? No. It says... It was when he believed God. Well, what, what did he believe? If you recall the story, God took him out and said, look at the stars in the heavens. See if you can count those stars, because that's how many descendants you're going to have. Now, at this point, Abraham didn't have any descendants. He had no sons from he and Sarah's union, zero. <laughs> and God said, you're going to have so many, you can't even count them. And the Bible says Abraham believed God's word. He believed that promise. And when he believed God's word and God's promise, God justified him. God credited him as righteous on the spot when all he did was believe. Now, think about that word credited for just a moment, because that word occurs over and over and over in this chapter. It comes up in verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 9, 10... Eleven. Oh, I think it even comes up more times. Yes, twenty-two. Uh, it comes up nine times in the chapter. It's an accounting word. Some of the, your versions might say God counted it to him as righteousness, or credited. We know what a credit is, right? You have your bank account, and if someone credits your account, they're putting money into it. And if they, if you debit your account, you're taking money out of it, right? Well, God is crediting. He's putting something into your account, and it's good. It's good stuff. It's like if you were dirt poor and you owed the bank $100,000 and you had a friend who just happened to be a millionaire who learned about your plight, and he came and said, I'm just going to do this guy a favor. And he wipes out your debt and deposits $900,000 into your account. So he he debits all of the debt out, and he credits $900,000 into the account, that's kind of like what we're talking about here. God credits the believer with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. He puts that positive righteousness into his account. He removes, he debits the sin, and he puts righteousness in. There's two things happening sin comes out, righteousness comes in. And that's justification. And that's what he means when he talks about crediting something as righteousness. Now, verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. When you've gone to work all week long, and your boss is handing out paychecks at the end of the week, and you've worked hard, man, you've been out in the sun, you've been out in the rain, you've been working and sweating, and you get that check, do you say to your boss, thank you, thank you, thank you, I don't know if I could ever find it in my heart to thank you enough for this favor that you're giving me today. (laughs) You don't say that, do you? Because it's not a favor. It's a debt that he owes you. You put in the sweat and the labor and you have earned that check. You deserve it. And if he doesn't give it to you, you can sue him because you have a legal right to that money. (laughs) So Paul is saying, to the one who works... His wage is not credited as a favor. No, it's not a favor. It's a debt that person owes you. And what he's saying here is that if we look at salvation as something that we earn by works, then God would be a wage payer. We would be in God's employee. (laughs) We would be working for God and that God owes us the debt of salvation or justification for all of the hard work we put into it. And he's saying, is that how salvation works? That you work really hard and God then has to pay you back with this. He writes you a check. Okay, justification because you worked hard enough to get this. No, that's not how it works. Back in chapter 3, verse 24, it says we're justified as a gift. Justification was not a debt God paid. It was a gift God gave us. Now, verse 5. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. This is such an important verse. You should memorize this verse. In the 1600s, there was a huge controversy. There was a huge debate over justification between the Roman Catholic Church and these new upstarts like Martin Luther, who disagreed with what the church was teaching on justification. Let me just give you a little insight of what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And folks, I'm I'm not against Catholics. I was one. I grew up as a Catholic. But facts are facts. And this is what the Catholic Church teaches. They say justification is accomplished through the sacraments. Initially, a person is justified when he gets baptized. Original sin is removed, and he's brought into a state of grace, and he's justified before God. And he remains in a justified state until he commits a mortal sin. Have you ever heard of, of mortal sin before? There's mortal and venial sins. Venial sins are the ones that aren't that bad. Mortal sins are bad because they make shipwreck of your soul, and you're in grave danger of eternal damnation unless you get that situation fixed quick. So if you commit a mortal sin, justification goes away and you're no longer in a state of grace until you do penance. There's the other sacraments you have to do in the Catholic Church. So penance is where you go to the priest, you confess your sins, and he tells you what to do to get back into a state of grace again so you can be justified again. And usually it's saying so many Hail Marys or Our Fathers, or it might be something more serious like fasting or doing a certain amount of good works or good deeds. But through these things that you do, what they call penance, you have now brought yourself back into a state of justification where now you're under God's grace again. That's really what they teach, salvation through the sacraments of the church. In fact, the Council of Trent, which was um, convened in like 1564, I think, somewhere in there, they said the sacrament of penance was a second plank of justification for those who have made shipwreck of their souls. Now maybe that doesn't make sense to you, but if you've made shipwreck of your soul, you grab onto a plank so that you can drift into the shore and be saved, right? Well, the first plank of your justification was your baptism. But if you've made shipwreck of your soul through mortal sin, like adultery or murder or some really bad sin, then penance is the second plank of justification that will help you get back to shore and be safe. That's what they're talking about. So the Catholic Church basically teaches that justification comes through the sacraments of the church. Now, if that's really what they teach, and I believe it is after looking at their documents, then who... Who now becomes dependent upon who for salvation? If you're saved through the sacraments of the church, who is the sinner dependent upon in order to be saved? It's the church. It's the church. Because if he, if he leaves the church, he can't do the sacraments that are in the church, and he can't be saved. See, the Roman Catholic Church has made its people absolutely dependent upon itself to be saved. You can't leave the church because you're leaving. There's only one true church in their theology. It's the Catholic church. If you leave it, you've left one true way of salvation. Okay. So if a person is justified by baptism and then doing penance and saying a certain number of prayers or fastings or good works, how then are they really justified in this system? They're justified by faith plus something that they do. Let's just call it a work. Whether that work is a prayer, whether that work is fasting, whether that work is making confession, there's something they must do, a human work added to their faith in order to stand right with God. And that's exactly what Paul is arguing against in this chapter. Verse 5, To the one who does not work... I mean, it's so important that you see that. But to the one who does not work, but instead he believes in him who justifies who? The ungodly. God justifies the person before he's godly. Before he's done any godly work at all. Do you you see that here? God justifies the ungodly. The Catholic Church teaches that God justifies the godly. Because God justifies the person who's of his own will is determined to be baptized. He's made confession to the priest. He's doing penance. He's doing these good works. And so God justifies him. That's not what Paul teaches. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's that ungodly person's faith is credited as righteousness. God sees his faith just like he saw Abraham's faith And he puts righteousness to his account, and he removes sin from his account. And he says, you are justified in my sight. I'm declaring you legally righteous. Before he's done a single good work, all he's done is believed. Now, his faith will produce the fruit of good works in his life. But at this moment... In Romans 4, 5, in the very moment of his conversion, he hasn't done a single good work. There's nothing he's done to earn a merit, this justification. God grants it freely by his grace apart from any works at all. All right, verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So now... Paul, in addition to Abraham, is going to bring in David from the Old Testament, just for a little while, just for three verses, to add more, even more credence to what he's saying. And he's going to quote David's words from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And here they are. Blessed are those who have, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, he talks about this man being blessed you guys know what the word blessed means? What does it mean to be blessed? Yeah, favored by God. And there's even, if you boil it down to its its minimum, there's even another meaning. Happy. Like Jerome preached on the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Basically, the word is happy are those who are meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So when he says here, David speaks of the blessing, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. He's saying, happy, happy in God are those who this has happened to them. You see, the gospel is good news and good news makes a person happy. Good news brings security. Good news brings comfort and joy to the heart. Good news brings a smile on the face, right? And so he says in verse 7, "Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account." Now, in verse 6, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 6, he says God credits righteousness apart from works, but in verses 7 and 8, he says God does not impute sin. Because justification consists of two parts. There's the imputation of one thing and the non-imputation of something else. Now try to follow me. Imputation means to put to someone's account. It's an accounting word. Remember we talked about the guy who credits righteousness and uh, debits sin, right? Well, David is talking about the second one, not the crediting of righteousness. David is talking about the removal of sin which is one half of justification. The other half is putting positive righteousness into... See, if God just took away your sin, He'd just put you back to a a neutral standing with God, like Adam was when he was created. But that's not what justification is. It's not just removing sin. It's adding a positive, perfect righteousness that God Himself gives to the sinner when He believes. So, David's talking about the non-imputation of sin. Paul talks about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Together, those two things produce a perfect standing with the sinner in God. Through no works of his own, just through faith in Christ. Now, David committed murder. David committed adultery. But then he writes in Psalm 32, and he says, How blessed, how happy is the man whom the Lord will not take his sin into account, because that's what God did for him. God forgave him his sins. David didn't do any works to earn God's favor. All he did was he confessed his sins to the Lord, he threw himself on the mercy of God, and God said, I've forgiven his sins. They're gone. Now let's draw out some implications of verses 1 to 8. The first one is this. God... Has saved all people, even people in the Old Testament, on exactly the same basis as he saves people in the New Testament. Did you see that? Abraham lived in the Old Testament, but Abraham was justified the same way we are, wasn't he? Do you see that in the text? He believed God, God credited it to him as righteousness. We believe God, we believe the gospel. God's good news of what he's done through Jesus Christ, his son. We believe that message. God credits it to us as righteousness. Sometimes we get this crazy idea that people back in the Old Testament were saved differently from us today. You know, back then they had to keep the law. And if they kept the law good enough, God would save them. We don't do that. That's just, that's for them back then. What we do is we believe in Christ and God saves us through belief in Christ. But it's not true. People in the Old Testament were saved just like us. Now, they didn't have as much revelation as we do. They had a little bit. All Abraham had was a promise of him being the father of many nations. That was his promise. That was God's word to him. He believed it. God credited it to him as righteousness. We have a full gospel to believe in. We know all about the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we put our faith in him, in the person of Christ, and God credits righteousness to our account through that. So that's the first thing to learn. Secondly, and this is really really important, beware of anybody who teaches you that salvation means Christ plus something. Christ plus something. That was the Galatian heresy. In the book of Galatians, the the Judaizers were going around to Paul's converts after he had planted a church and he would say, Hey, you believe in Christ? That's great. I'm glad you believe in Jesus. Have you been circumcised yet? <laughs> no. Well, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. I'm, 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 I'm glad that you believe in Jesus, but that's not enough. You need to also be circumcised to go to heaven. And in fact, well, I mean, we look back on this and think, Why was that such an issue back then? But you have to understand <laughs> that they were coming from hundreds of years in which the Jews were the only people of God. And all of the people of God were circumcised. And here, the Gentiles were coming into the church and they had never been circumcised. And so they're wondering, well, is this legitimate? Can these Gentiles really just come in to the church and believe in Christ and be saved without getting circumcised? In fact, they held a big council. Acts chapter 15, there's this big Jerusalem council where that's the subject. And they're trying to iron out, can people be saved without being circumcised? And the answer is, finally is, Yes. Peter says, let's not put on them a yoke which we nor our fathers were able to bear. We believe that we were justified by faith in Christ. So that's, that's the message that we give to these Gentiles. So today there are people that have a message of Christ plus something else. Sometimes it's baptism. Sometimes it's the other sacraments of the church like penance. The word penance isn't even in the Bible, but somehow that's become a sacrament. Um, It might be Christ plus the church, Christ plus good works. You fill it in, fill in the blank. But Jesus and Jesus alone, they say, is really not enough. You need this in order to be saved. In Galatians 2.21, Paul deals with this subject. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Okay? If we could attain right standing with God through our obedience to the law, then Jesus didn't have to come because I could do it on my own. You see his arguing? So no. You You cannot attain righteousness through the law through the works of the law. And that's why Christ did come, because it's impossible for us to be justified by keeping the law. And sometimes even as Christians, we can fall into this mistake. We sometimes think, boy, if if I I just worked a little harder or tried a little bit harder, maybe God would love me more. Maybe God would really accept me fully if I just really... Had a better devotional life, or if I could just get up early enough to get into the Word every day, or you know, if if I made it to church more often, and we think there's something lacking in us that if we just did that, then God would really love us. Like I know He loves me some, but not fully. And I know Christians who struggle with this, just kind of a partial assurance of salvation, but not a full assurance. Um, now the problem with that is. Well, think this through. How much does God love Jesus? Can God love Jesus any more than He already does? I don't think so. (laughs) Does God accept His Son fully and completely? Absolutely. Now, are you in Christ? If you are in Christ, He loves you as much as He can. He can't love you any more because you are in Jesus, and He loves Jesus with every fiber of His being. And he accepts Christ perfectly and fully forever. If you are in Christ, that applies to you. Now, if you're outside of Christ, it doesn't. But if you're in Christ, you are accepted and you're loved. And God can't love you any more than he already does. Even if you don't have this radical devotional life. Even if you're not getting up at five in the morning to pray or whatever the thing is. He loves you just the way you are because you are connected to his son. You're trusting in his son. And that's what makes the difference. Now, the first major point that Paul makes here is, Abraham was justified apart from works. The second one is, Abraham was justified apart from circumcision. That's what he says in verses 9 to 12. He says, is this blessing, and the blessing he's talking about is the same one that David talked about. The blessing of being credited righteous... Apart from works, is that blessing then on the circumcised, or is it on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. But when? When was Abraham justified? Was it while he was circumcised, or while he was uncircumcised? Does anybody know the answer? While uncircumcised. That's right. He was justified in Genesis 15. Two chapters later, he gets circumcised in Genesis 17. So God justifies him before he gets circumcised. That's Paul's point here in verses 9 to 12. God justified him before he was circumcised. So, why is that important? It's important because Abraham didn't have to go through any religious rituals in order to be saved. God saved him apart from religious ritual. Um, there are certain groups that teach that you must go through the ritual of baptism in order to be saved. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that. The Mormon Mormons teach that. The Churches of Christ teach that. And um, the United Pentecostal Church teaches that. There might be others that I don't know about, but I know at least those four. Baptism is essential to salvation, and it's not enough for you to believe if you were on a battlefield and you repented and put your faith in Christ and then got shot before you were baptized they say you would go to hell now is that what Paul teaches? Paul is teaching the opposite Abraham was justified before he got circumcised which was their religious ritual ours is baptism today I went online and I looked up um, the Mormons official website which is lds.org to see what they teach about baptism this is what they say Baptism by immersion in water, by one having authority, and they mean a Mormon leader, is the first saving ordinance of the gospel, and is necessary for an individual to become a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and to receive eternal salvation. They say baptism by immersion by someone authorized by the Mormon Church is necessary not only to be part of the Church, but to receive eternal salvation. I have a very good friend who belongs to the Church of Christ. I probably told you about him before, but a few years back he wanted to debate me on this issue because they they believe I'm not saved today because when I got baptized, I didn't believe that I was getting baptized in order to be saved. They say you have to be baptized and believe that that baptism is saving you. If that's not the baptism you went through, you're still lost, and they think I'm headed for hell. Because I didn't, I didn't believe that when I get baptized. And so we went back and forth, and he was trying to persuade me, and I was trying to persuade him. And after about three weeks of this, we both gave up because nobody was persuading anybody else. But they believe it very, very strongly. But I do not know how you can reconcile that view with what Paul teaches here in Romans chapter 4. He's going to great pains to show... Abraham didn't have to go through any religious ritual to be saved. He believed God, and God right then and there, before he did anything, justified him. Did you guys see that? I mean, I mean, that seems so clear to me. And this is what the Galatians were teaching. And let me just show you what Paul says to people who teach something like this. It's Galatians 1. If someone's going to teach, you can be saved by believing in Christ, plus... And then fill in the blank, it's Christ plus something, Paul has a message for them. It's Galatians 1.6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we... Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now, if you read the rest of the letter of the Galatians, you're going to find out that the gospel that these people were preaching was that you can be saved by believing in Christ plus getting circumcised. They're adding circumcision to the requirements to be saved. And Paul says that's a different gospel. That person who's teaching that should be accursed. And that's a very strong word, means damned. Basically, let that guy go to hell who's teaching you those things. That's how strongly he put it. And he says he's distorting the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm not talking to you about something that has no relevance. If we believe in justification by faith plus works, we've distorted the gospel. The one true gospel of Christ is that we are justified by faith alone, through the grace of Christ alone. And this is what the reformers were battling for. There was only one church in their day, the Roman Catholic Church. (laughs) You you were either part of that church or you want, that's it. (laughs) And they were saying, at first the reformers didn't want to leave the church, they wanted to purify it. They wanted to purify its ungodly doctrine and to return it to the the scriptures. And that's why Luther said scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. And he was considered a heretic for doing so. Many people who stood up against the Catholic Church and and said, We don't believe in the doctrines you're preaching. We don't believe they're coming from the Bible. They were actually burned at the stake, like John Huss. So this is something that we should, we should build this into the fabric of our theology, our doctrine, and our life, that we're not trusting in anything other than Jesus. We're not trusting in our baptism. We're not trusting in our church attendance. We're not trusting in our Bible reading. We're trusting in Jesus and Him alone for salvation. Okay, the third major point that Paul makes here. Abraham was justified apart from the law. And we get that in verses 13 to 15. He says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Okay, so what in the world was he talking about when he he talked about becoming heir of the world? He said there was a promise made to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be heir of the world. Well, the only promise that I could come up with that that hints at something like this is Genesis 17. I'm going to go back there. In Genesis 17, verse 8, God said to Abraham, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. But the problem is God promised Abraham, the land of Canaan. When we get to Romans chapter 4, it says he promised him the world. Canaan wasn't the world. Canaan was a very, very small sliver of the world. So uh, what's Paul saying here? Well, the first thing we should notice is that God promised Abraham the land of Canaan, but Abraham never did get the whole land of Canaan. It wasn't until later on during the the rule of Joshua that they went in and they dispossessed all the nations and they they took over all the land that God had promised to them. Abraham during his lifetime didn't have it. So if God promised it to Abraham and he didn't have it during his lifetime, when is he going to receive this promise? After he's raised from the dead. God raises him from the dead and fulfills the promise to give him the land. Except... When we get to the New Testament, it's no longer the land anymore. It's the world. Do you remember uh, Matthew 5? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the what? The earth. Not the land of Canaan, the earth. And here in Romans 4.15, the promise made to Abraham that he would inherit the world. Now, is there any promise that we have as Christians about the world that you can think of? What is God going to do when Christ comes back? He's going to destroy this world, and he's going to do what? He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, a new world. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'll just tell you what I believe, and you can search the scripture and see if you agree or not. (laughs) I think when he gave this land promise to Abraham and to his descendants, it was a type of something far greater to come in the future. Back to them, it was the land of Canaan. It was a promise made to them, and God fulfilled that promise. But it, it, was, typo, it was typical. It, just like the animal sacrifices were types of the one perfect sacrifice of Christ, which is much greater than any animal sacrifice, just as circumcision was a type of regeneration under the new covenant, the changing of the heart, I believe that the land was a type of God giving the world, this new earth to His people as an eternal inheritance for them. But how was that promise made to Abraham about him inheriting the world? Was it through the works of the law? No. No, it was not through the law. It was through the righteousness of faith. In other words, it was through his justification by faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void. You don't need faith if you can just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and work really hard and obey the law. You don't need faith for that. And then the promise is nullified because nobody can keep the law well enough. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. So Paul is saying every man, woman, and child are going to inherit one of two things. Either you will be a child of Abraham and you will inherit the world with him, or you will not be a child of Abraham and you will inherit wrath. Verse 15. Either you get the world or you get wrath. It's one or the other. And the whole thing hinges on are you under the law or are you under grace? If you are under the law and you die under the law, the law will be your judge and it will condemn you. But the Bible says in Romans 6 that we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. How does a person get out from underneath the law where it condemns them and punishes them and under grace where you are free from that punishment and now Christ is your life. How does a person get out from under law so that they're now under grace? They have to get into Christ. If you're in Christ, you're under grace. And the law can no longer condemn you. Romans 10:4 says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe. Do you believe? then Christ is the end of the law for you. The law can't condemn you anymore. That's why Romans 8.1 says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It can't punish you because it punished him in your place. It can't condemn you because it condemned him in your place. The law cannot, well, the law can serve to convict you of sin, but it can no longer serve to judge and condemn you and to punish you. So, are you one of Abraham's sons who who will inherit the world? Or are you a child of the devil who will inherit wrath? It all hinges on faith. You see, Abraham was the father of all those who believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe in Christ? when you believe it unites you to the Son of God, takes you out from under the law, puts you in Christ where now you are under the power of the grace of God. And that grace just begins in your justification and then it continues to work in your life to sanctify you, to bring you through every trial and to bring you safely home to glory where you inherit the world, this new earth, where you will be with the saints and the angels and dwell in a world free of sin with perfect righteousness All that takes place through faith in the Son of God. So let's wrap all this up this morning. Abraham was justified apart from works, apart from circumcision, and apart from the law. So we could paraphrase that. We are right with God apart from good deeds, apart from religious ritual, and apart from obedience to the law. We are justified through faith in the Son of God. My hope is built on nothing less than than jesus blood and righteousness i dare not trust the sweetest frame what he means by that is anything i can do my frame but holy w-h-o-l-l-y completely lean on jesus name you see that they're expressing the truth of romans 4 in that hymn on christ the solid rock i stand i'm not standing on my own righteousness i'm not standing on my obedience or my performance on christ the solid rock i'm standing all of the ground is sinking sand anything that i do if i try to trust in that and stand before god i'm undone but i will stand if i stand on the rock of jesus christ him and him alone is my justification and folks that is good news any other message we i bring to you is bad news If I tell you, you can be saved by Christ plus something, well, that something is bad news because it's something you have to do. And you may not be able to do it. You may fail that. But if I say you are saved by Christ, that's good news because I can believe in Him. I do believe in Him. And that's enough. Faith in Christ is enough. So have you experienced God's free justification through faith? If you have then live a happy life. You're blessed, according to Psalm 32. Live in the joy of the Lord. Be happy in the Lord. Find your joy in Him. It's your strength. Walk with Him. Find strength for the day through relationship to Christ, through union to Him. Exercise your faith every day. New faith for whatever is happening that day. Exercise it. And God will bring you through. He's promised to. Amen. Praise your Lord. Oh, Lord, How we are happy today. We are, we are blessed beyond measure because of what you've done for us in your Son. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. May we never step off of this rock and step onto our own performance as a ground for our acceptance. Lord, keep us from that foolish mistake of ever trusting in ourselves. Let us look to you and to you only. And we all pray together, Lord.